We have an interesting passage. We're coming to the end of Hebrews. Uh, We're in chapter 13, the last chapter. Uh, We're obviously missing tons of people. It is the first day of summer, and uh, so we need to be remembering uh, those folks as they travel. I'm glad you're here, and uh, I'm still glad it's summer, even though it's hot in here. But turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 1 through 19. And this is sort of a summary passage for the book. There is a little more to come, but it's kind of wrapping everything up. So I'll be reading starting at verse 1. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. Hebrews 13, 1 through 19. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. A word of God. Thanks be to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We need it. We need it as much as that first congregation needed to hear it. We need it more than we've ever needed it before. So we pray by the power of your spirit, you would press it home and make our hearts believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have a lot to say uh, today about current events. So while the sermon will certainly not be shorter, the exposition of the text in the center section just for today will be a little shorter than usual and I hope you understand as we go through this as many of you know I just got back uh, from this year's general assembly the annual meeting of our denomination which was held 
in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So I thought I'd start this morning by giving a brief report of what happened. So first of all, the good news. The PCA continues to plan a church a week in the United States, as it has for the last 10 years. Church planning is still one of our top priorities. That's huge. RUF is now on 125 campuses, expects to open 10 more in the next two years, including eight in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We have eight RUF campuses uh, here. That's huge. We elected Dr. Lloyd Kim as the new head of MTW. He's the first Korean American to head a major committee or agency in the PCA, and that was huge. And I didn't really think it was huge until it happened. And I saw all the other Korean pastors just jumping, literally jumping out of their seats uh, for joy. Um, and sort of this idea that, you know, we're accepted. And uh, it was great. Dr. Uh, Kim is a missionary physician and uh, has come back now, very humble and gracious person. And that was huge. So be encouraged. There's all sorts of good stuff happening in the PCA. We had a number of what I would call semi-important theological issues, usually dealing with men who wanted to change this or that theological view. But in the end, there was very little in the way of dramatic decisions, uh, which means that, in general, uh, most folks thought things in the PCA were going pretty well. And as you know, there are winds in our society uh, that are blowing that are anti-Bible and anti-Christian and anti-church. And we are going to increasingly come under pressure to water down our beliefs and practices in order to accommodate the culture. Uh, please know that once again, the PCA has stood firm on doctrines and practices, even those that are maligned in our current cultural context. And I think that speaks well of our resolve and our faithfulness and our submission to the authority of Scripture. So that's all the good news. The last evening we were there was the Thursday night. We had a very long uh, discussion and debate on the topic of racial reconciliation. It ended with a season of prayer that lasted until midnight. It was very powerful. And since we're usually racing the clock to finish all our business, I found it immensely encouraging that people were willing just to stay afterwards to pray and to repent about this topic of racial reconciliation. The whole discussion started when uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan serves as the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, the former senior minister of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, someone I often quote, uh, and Dr. Sean Michael Lucas, who's a professor of church history uh, at RTS, uh, the senior minister of First Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, is probably someone I should quote often. Uh, he's also the author of the book on being Presbyterian, which a number of you are studying in the summer uh, study this, this summer. Um, together, these two sons of Mississippi, that was very significant, that these sons of Mississippi brought this resolution to the General Assembly seeking to acknowledge and confess the PCA's sins and failures during the Civil Rights Era. The resolution was actually referred to next year's General Assembly, 
in order to add some recommendations on how to apply it uh, in our local churches. And I'm going to read the last part, actually about the last third. It's quite long. You can go online to uh, By Faith, read the whole thing if you want. But it says, uh, again, this is the last third. Whereas our denomination's continued unwillingness to speak truthfully about our failure to seek justice and to love mercy during the civil rights era. That's roughly post-World War II to roughly 1980. So you're talking a period uh, of approximately 25 years, certainly uh, centered in the late 60s. It says, whereas God has once more given our denomination a gracious providential opportunity to show the beauty, grace, and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ by showing Christ-like love and compassion towards the greater African-American community, be it therefore resolved. The 43rd General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize and confess our church's covenantal and generational involvement in and complicity with racial injustice inside and outside of our churches during the civil rights period and be it further resolved that this General Assembly recommit ourselves to the task of truth and reconciliation with our African-American brothers and sisters for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel, and be it finally resolved that the General Assembly urges the congregations of the Presbyterian Church in America to confess their own particular sins and failures as may be appropriate and to seek out further truth and reconciliation for the gospel's sake within their own local communities. And I thought Ligon and Sean's courageous resolution stirred this much-needed discussion in the PCA as a predominantly Southern denomination at our founding. The PCA and many of its churches failed and sinned in numerous ways during the civil rights era. It's an issue that demands attention. And so conversation during the whole week of General Assembly centered on this resolution. We sort of knew it would be the last thing that we dealt with, that we get all the other stuff out of the way first. And I found the debate was enormously encouraging and helpful, in some ways challenging, and I have great hope that next year's General Assembly will be able to address it, um, our sins and failures, and begin this process of healing and reconciliation. And there was a one really powerful moment when an old man got up, he's about 80 years old, and his name is Jim Baird. And Dr. Baird's the former pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. He was actually Ligon Duncan's predecessor. And he's a founding father, one of the original 12-man steering group that started the PCA that was put together back in 1971. PCA started in 73. There were 12 men, six teaching elders and six ruling elders. There are still only two left uh, alive, and Jim Baird was one of those two truly founding fathers. And he got up, and he actually had to be helped to the microphone. And he acknowledged his own personal failings and sins during this era and asked for forgiveness from the entire denomination. He confessed that in the early years of the PCA. He didn't lift a finger, and the PCA didn't lift a finger to help the civil rights movement. That he didn't do anything in those early years. 
although by all accounts, he's actually done a great deal to help with racial reconciliation since then. But he made the case that it was good and right to repent of that and to strive for a more diverse PCA. His example set the stage for a time of confession and prayer on that last night. And I was thankful that we finished, I'm going to guess, around 10.30 with our business and prayed till midnight. And it was just really powerful time. I've attended, I did a quick count, I think this was my 18th General Assembly. I can't remember an assembly where we spent as much time praying together. And I thought, what an encouragement to practice what we teach. The PCA is a church that's dependent on Jesus, confesses such in its theology, and demonstrated such at this assembly. And I want to leave you with this idea. The most significant thing that I have, I think, to report is we are still an intentionally mission-minded denomination. It was clear, though, we don't always agree on how things should be done. We agree the Great Commission is central to our mission as a church. We have a whole variety of congregations, some traditional, uh, some progressive, uh, urban, suburban, rural, but together we're committed to Christ and his church. And that's important because on any given Sunday this morning, there will be just over 250 million Americans who are not in church. That makes the United States the third largest mission field in the world, just behind China and India. We're actually well behind China and India. We don't think in those terms. We live in the third largest mission field in the world. And with so much work to be done, it's good to know that we're partnering with other churches, we're partnering with so many other brothers and sisters that we can learn from to bring people to Christ. As I wrote earlier this week, there's a great emphasis on brotherly love and hospitality, upholding biblical standards of morality and sound doctrine, maintaining a clear conscience through repentance and prayer. And providentially, all those topics are covered in this week's text in Hebrews 13. It's the final wrap of the book of Hebrews and serves as a summary of everything that's gone before. Now don't get too excited, there's still one more week. We have sort of a benediction and blessing uh, for next week. But we start with Hebrews 13, and the very first sentence says, let brotherly love continue. And that's crucial because the church is supposed to be a community built by love. Community built by love. Hopefully that's the first blank there in your outline. We're sustained by the love of God, but the first thing, as he tells us, is that our love for each other should continue. According to Jesus, reconciliation is everyone's responsibility. It's simply another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we start in verse 1 with this plea to love others. It says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality for strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, 
For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Well, first thing we're supposed, we see is that we're supposed to love each other as brothers and sisters, as family. It seems that some in this little Hebrew church had stopped loving each other. They had become divided by rivalries and feuds. One of the many posts I saw online this week said, If God is your father, then you are my brother. And that's true. Because the love he's talking about here is volitional. That means it's not an emotion. It's a deliberate choice. We're to choose to will to love each other. Not because of anything they have done to deserve it, but simply because they're in Christ just as we are in Christ. And it's not just with words. It's with letting in and going out. Letting people into your homes and sharing with them and feeding them. So reminded hospitality is not supposed to be a southern thing. It's supposed to be a gospel thing. And that so we're to be people who practice hospitality. But it's not just bringing people in. It's also going out, going to see people who are suffering, uh, whether they're in the hospital or shut in or simply lonely. These are our brothers and sisters. We need to be going to them. Now, it's very easy to say that. And perhaps you don't know where to start. So I'm going to give you a suggestion. Help the diaconate. We have eight deacons. We just added uh, four more a few weeks ago. Uh, do you know what they're doing? Do you know what they're being involved in? The diaconate is basically doing corporate hospitality, finding people with emotional needs and uh, material needs, spiritual needs, financial needs, and working with all those folks. And uh, you could either give money to the deacon's fund, or you could even say, here's what I do for a living. If you think this would be of some help in your ministry of helping people, then just let me know. Uh, one of the things you could do, and currently I know Stuart's in the back, and Stuart's had some health issues. The deacons are helping him out. Maybe you'd like to get involved uh, with uh, helping the deacons help Stuart. It's not hard, and uh, we would greatly appreciate it. So you have this emphasis on hospitality, bringing people in and yet going out to people. And I sort of picked on Stuart because he's my friend, but we have lots of people with health issues. We've got all kinds of folks with various health issues. You have to get to know them before you know what those health issues are. You actually have to spend time with people. So you can find out what's going on and figure out ways you can serve them. That's a way of practicing hospitality. And then he shifts in verse 4. There's a definite shift in the tone, but I think it's related. But in verse 4, we have one of the clearest verses on marriage and purity that's in the Bible. It says, God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Those are two important words or phrases. Uh, you know what adultery means. It means to have sex with somebody when you're married to somebody else, uh, being unfaithful to a wife or husband. The phrase sexually immoral is more general, means any kind of sex outside of marriage. Now Christians are radically concerned, if you read these texts carefully, they're radically concerned with the poor, they're radically generous with their money, they're deeply concerned about social justice. And I read those things and it sounds liberal. So Christians are liberal. But then I read that they're absolutely against sex outside of marriage. Well, that would make them conservative. You know, obviously it can't be both liberal and conservative. Yes, they can. 
Isn't that a contradiction? No, it's not. Christians are weird. And they were weird back in that culture, and they're just as weird today and defy categories just as much today in our culture. People say, well, isn't that contradictory to say no sex outside of marriage and be sort of conservative in that area of morality, but then be very active when it comes to justice? And I don't think it's contradictory at all. And I think this is one reason why Christians are what they are. The gospel says something very different to us about our money, about how we treat people, about our sexuality. Unlike the culture, the gospel says if God has given you money, that money is not yours for your own personal peace and affluence. It's been given to you by God in order to build community. You're supposed to be putting it out there, investing it, giving it away, plowing it into people in order to build community. And the gospel also says that your sexuality is a gift. It's not something given to you just for your own personal pleasure and happiness. It is also a way of building community. That's the reason the gospel has always said that sex is a nurturing, unifying practice only to be shared by a man and woman in exclusive lifelong covenant. It's a nurturing, unifying discipline inside a covenant between one man and one woman in order to create a stable basis for families. And you can look at all the research and even all the secular research, and it all comes, says, it verifies this, that in fact it's the only basis for families. It's the only environment in which children can be raised emotionally and psychologically safe. Now, that doesn't always happen. We live in a sinful world. We have lots of broken, lots of dysfunctional families. But it clearly says this is the best place for families. And families are what build community. In other words, the gospel has always said that your money is not your own. It's for building community, not just for your pleasure. And the gospel has always said that your sexuality is not your own. It's also for building community and not just for your pleasure. So where do we get this idea? Well, ultimately, we get it from Jesus. Because Jesus didn't treat his body as if it were his own. He didn't treat his glory. He didn't treat his wealth as if they were his own. He gave them in order to make us a family, to make us a community. And that's the principle, and it's the principle behind uh, much of what we do as a church. And it makes Christians look kind of weird, kind of liberal in some ways and conservative in other ways. And it was true back then, and it's true now. Now, I could spend an enormous amount of time on this topic. I'm not going to because we start Proverbs in two weeks and we'll have a whole sermon on this topic. So we will be coming back to it. But su suffice it to say for now that if there is one who has your favor, your love, your heart, you're not to let your heart go anywhere else. So the writer goes on to this point about loving. He expands it from loving others to loving him. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Keep your life free from love of money, 
Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? In Matthew, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for he will, he, excuse me, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So we're to be content and free from the love of money because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We're not to be free from the love of money because money is in and of itself a bad thing. The Bible doesn't say that. It says we're free from the love of money because God is better and God is here. God's presence frees us from materialism. That's a big topic in our culture today. You live in Northern Virginia. Materialism is a rampant philosophy. And it's just accepted. It's part of the atmosphere. People don't usually spell it out. There's very few people that say, well, I'm a materialist. But almost everybody is. It's the air we breathe. And yet, the Bible says that we can keep money and materialism from running our lives because God is with us. That applies to everything that's gone before. We can keep our spouses in first place because God is with us. We can love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ because God is with us. Not because of what they've done or who they are, not because of our own wisdom or our own goodness, only because God is with us and he has promised to never leave us, never abandon us, never turn away from us. You can be sustained in all these areas, because Christ is the one who sustains us. And since Christ is the one who sustains us, we can go on to sustain each other. So that's the first part. A community that's built on love. We can love even in hard circumstances, demanding circumstances, because God is with us. But then there's a second section, and I'm going to call it a community strengthened by grace. Community strengthened by grace. Because we move from being loving people to actually putting that into action. Demonstrating love by giving grace. And again, there's two ways that we demonstrate uh, this. The first one is to love the truth. Verses 7 through 9, love the truth. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Simply put, you're to follow those who follow God. Paul said this a number of different ways in the Bible. Uh, one is in Philippians 3. He said, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In 2 Timothy, writing to Timothy, he said, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, the issue is not the leaders, it's the word of God. You're to imitate those who speak the word and live the word. You're to follow those whose lives are in accordance with the word. And you follow because of the word, not because of the personality. Because just as Christ is the living word, so the word is the written Christ. 
And Christ never changes. We just read that. And therefore, the Word never changes. Our lives are to be modeled on the Word of God as seen in the examples of other people whose lives are modeled on the Word of God. And next, we're to rely on the grace of God. Not on the rituals or the disciplines or the godly habits or the ceremonies, all good things that point to Christ and to grace. But things that are easy to forget where they're pointing us and become an end in and of themselves. If I do these good things, God will like me. Well, the truth is God loves you as much as he possibly can. And there's nothing you can do to get God to love you or accept you any more than he does right now. If you have a horrible day tomorrow, you don't read the word, you lose your temper, you do all sorts of sinful things, God doesn't love you any less. And you wake up Tuesday, and you start with the word, and you love everybody, and you're happy, God doesn't love you anymore. God loves you right now as much as he possibly can. It's all by grace from beginning to end. So live not to earn the love of God, but live in grateful response to the love and grace of God. Second, we're to demonstrate how much we love him because we love to pray. We love prayer. It's a long theological section here starting at verse 10. But there are some things in here that lead us to prayer that are repeated several times. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest is sacrificed for sin or burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse 13, therefore, let us go to him. Outside the camp, bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So we go to him, we seek the city, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. So we go to him, we seek the city that is to come, we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So we're told to go to him, to seek the city that is to come, to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, and then very bluntly pray for us. Very quickly, this passage speaks to two more things. The sacrifice of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's taken outside the camp to be sacrificed. He is the one uh, who is the once for all sacrifice for our sins. His is the blood that was spilled, not the blood of bulls and goats. But as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, and if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with precious things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's the price with which we were bought. That's the cost it took to make us holy. So in response to that sacrifice of Jesus, we offer our own sacrifice. And we're told two ways. The first is a sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of confessing the name of Jesus in your worship. And that doesn't just mean on Sunday morning. It means any time you worship God, any time you come in prayer throughout the week, which we bring all of that together on Sunday morning. Praising his name in prayer. That's to be the sacrifice of your heart. But he goes on and says another sacrifice is doing good and sharing with others. Harkening back to that uh, general hospitality command we had at the beginning. Very practical side of love, of letting people in and going out to share. It's the sacrifice of your hands. To use a biblical example, you might say you need to worship like Mary and work like Martha. You don't get to pick one or the other. So sacrifice your heart, worship, sacrifice your hands in service. And he says, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then finally we come to one of the harder passages of Scripture. Verses 17 and 18 tell us to obey your leaders, submit to them, and pray for them. Well, I would think that that shouldn't be as hard as it initially sounds, at least for those of you who have already joined the church, because when you joined, you took a vow that said, submit to the government and discipline of the church. Every time we install a new officer, as we just did uh, recently, installing four more deacons, you agreed to, quote, obey them in the Lord, honor and respect them, and pray for them regularly. So you see, these verses about obedience and submission and prayer should simply be reminders to what you've already agreed to do. Now, the hard part is you're not doing this because of the upstanding character and quality of your leaders who never make a mistake. I don't think so. Because we regularly make mistakes, and we regularly sin just like you. But rather, submit because being obedient to God, who is the source of all authority and puts all authority in our lives. Never forget, this isn't simply a form of church government. It is a command of God Almighty, and to ignore it would be of no advantage to you. That's what our text says. Well, that's how God tells us to be sustained by his promise and to be sustaining to his people. How does that work out in the real world? I'm finally going to lose this. How does it work in the real world? Because the world's full of suffering, the world is full of sin, and the world is full of shootings in Charleston. Well, I think in the coming days, the response to the shooting in Charleston will be predictable. It'll be tried and true. Theologians will offer us carefully reasoned explanations of sin and depravity, and rightly so. Counselors will tell us that grieving is not only natural but helpful. Various cultural commentators will point to all the cultural problems (coughs) and political solutions. 
and pastors will call churches to greater faith, to trust God when things don't make sense. All of that is true. And all may be what we need to hear, but it still leaves us with a bunch of hard questions, doesn't it? Because the fact that this happened in a church at a prayer meeting, and we all sort of assume that churches is a sanctuary, it's a safe place. What do I tell my children the next time we walk into our sanctuary, our safe haven, and there's strangers in our midst? How do I convince them they'll be safe? Speaking very personally, what do I do to alleviate my wife's concern that her pastor husband could be the next victim? How do I comfort her knowing that my army training uh, taught me to run towards trouble, not away from it? Pastorally speaking, what do you tell the victim of abuse, of violence, when she knows the world is full of evil people? And senseless violence is very, very real. And I guess I would say the same thing to all of them. Uh, same thing the Bible has told us for years and years and years. The first thing, our first response, is to pray. Is to pray. When the victims have been buried and the murderer has been tried, and justice has been served, we'll still be praying. We'll pray for the survivors, and we'll pray for the families, and we'll pray for the community, and we'll pray for racial reconciliation, and we'll pray because that's what we do. We'll pray because we will not be silenced until we take our dying breath. We'll pray that we'll be faithful to the end. And we pray because ultimately our safe haven, our sanctuary, is found in Christ alone. Two weeks ago, a number of us got to go to the wedding of Aaron Rist and Ryan Corder. It took place on a beautiful June afternoon in Charleston, South Carolina. Reverend Dorst officiated. The bride was beautiful. Brides are beautiful by definition. The day was wonderful. And I got to wear my seersucker suit one more time, because if you can't wear it in Charleston, you can't wear it anywhere. That morning before the wedding, Joanne and I, along with Dave and John and Gail Spence, we worship with uh, the good folks at Christ Presbyterian, Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, uh, Dr. John Payne, pastor there. Great service, very traditional, but very well done. And after the wedding was over, a number of us gathered in Charleston on top of an old Charleston hotel, where we could look out over the skyline of this beautiful, historic southern city. And soon everybody went home, and I went to General Assembly, where, as I told you earlier, we spent a good part of the week discussing racial reconciliation. And then this week, the very next week, just a few blocks from the spot where we enjoyed looking out over the city, Evil and violence showed up. And I really struggled with what to say. So I'm simply going to turn to the words of my friend Duke Kwan. He's another pastor in our presbytery. 
Duke wrote some. I thought this was very moving. He said they were killed because they loved. Into their intimate gathering for Bible study and prayer, they welcomed him. They welcomed him, a stranger, a racial outsider, a spiritual sojourner, loving across those lines. Which is to say they made themselves vulnerable because, you know, that's what love does. And that's what love did. Divine impassibility, the doctrine that God doesn't feel passions or pain, became cruciform vulnerability, the doctrine that in Christ... <coughs> Sorry, I'm going to have a hard time with this. In Christ, on the cross, God chose to feel passion and pain for our sakes. For a full hour, this man sat amongst them before rising to betray his hosts, violating their sacred trust with violent sacrilege. They loved they didn't have to, but they did. Glory to God. And now they're dead. And yet I pray that the narrative most passionately rehearsed over these next few weeks is not primarily that of victimhood, although weep with our brothers and sisters we must, but of spiritual valor. The courageous endurance of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina in the face of generations of neglect, exclusion, and violence. See, to them, this tragedy is hardly a novelty. Neither is the perseverance of the black church under the duress of injustice and pain. I'm simply amazed at my brothers and sisters' gracious, long-suffering, and humble spirits. They are indeed witnesses of whom the world is not worthy, Hebrews 11.38. So they've apprehended the suspect, the welcome stranger, and taken him into custody. May he be given what's due him. Okay, nevertheless, let not one perpetrator be the sole scapegoat for our collective failure. Surely this evil is greater than one Mr. Dylan Roof. In a eulogy for the victims of a church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King gave us a prophetic reminder he said, the victims say to us, we must be concerned, not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, and the philosophy which produced the murders. Systems, institutions, we got the bad apple, how about the orchard? As they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But what Duke wrote was, the apple doesn't fall far from the church. It starts right here. If not here, then where? If not now, then when? If there was ever a time for the American church to rise up with zeal for racial healing and harmony, it is now. If there was ever a time for the church to rise up, or rather stoop down, in heartfelt repentance for racial sin, past and present, individual and corporate, it's now. Which is why I was cautiously encouraged last week by our denomination's movement towards public repentance for our complicity and involvement in racial injustice during the civil rights era up to the present day. An effort to ensure that we not only repent, but bear the fruit of repentance through corrective action in the church, 
A fuller statement was deferred for approval to next year's General Assembly, but a shorter statement, the form of a protest was issued, which I signed along with about 300 other pastors and elders. John Price submitted the protest. He's a friend of mine. And he went up to present it to the front, and they said if anybody else would like to sign it, and they put out a piece of paper, and you can go up and sign it saying you agree with it. And so he was the first one up there, and he gave it to him. They gave him a piece of paper, and a man behind him said, thank you. And he said, I just felt I had to do it. And he says, no, you don't understand. You need to turn around and look. And John turned around, and there were about 300 people in line to sign this statement. This is in a hall about 10 times the size of this one, and the line went all the way to the back door. And in front of, uh, there had to be a thousand people in the room. And John just started weeping. He couldn't believe it. He really thought it was just going to be him and a few of his buddies. And there were hundreds of people in line. And what he wrote was that we, the 43rd General Assembly of the PCA, understand that repentance is not merely a statement, but steps of faithfulness that follow. Allowing them more time is needed to adequately work on such a denominational statement, but also the need for action now. We recognize and confess our church's covenantal and generational involvement in and complicity with racial injustice inside and outside of our church during the civil rights period. We commit ourselves to the task of truth and repentance over the next year for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel and we urge the congregations of the Presbyterian Church in America to confess their own particular sins and failures as may be appropriate and to seek truth and repentance for the gospel's sake within their own community. It's a small step, but it's a step in the right direction. It's literally decades late. But if anything, this, the tragic events of this past week raises the stakes it says, in light of being confronted with such evil, repent we must. For ourselves, our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel AME, for Charleston, for our country, and especially for the church. The church, when she humbles herself, is not simply for herself, but John 6 says, for the life of the world. In the meantime, we mourn and pray and cry out with the martyred saints, how long, sovereign Lord? And we labor with grace in order that they and he will not have shed blood in vain. I know we're going a little long. Bear with me. So we could say a lot to the, about these murders that occurred in Charleston, South Carolina at Emmanuel AME Church. But one thing is certain. In order to really deal with it, you need theological language. It was sick and criminal and revolting, but ultimately it was evil. That's a theological term. It was sin. That's a theological term. It's an affront to a good and holy God. 
and adding to the wickedness of this man's actions is that these brothers and sisters in Christ welcomed him into their midst and by his own admission showed him kindness. And I like to say it's just incomprehensible, but the reality is it's become all too comprehensible. Man has been murdering man since he lived east of Eden. I'm sure there's a complex of issues that drove this guy in Charleston, but above all else was this willful dismissal that he was accountable to God. And on another beautiful June evening, in a prayer meeting in Charleston, he declared himself to be his own God. And God's answer to that evil is the same answer to evil in all times and all places. And the answer is Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is where we continue to need theological language. Our brothers and sisters in Charleston have been pouring out their lament and prayer and song as God's people have done for thousands of years. And their sorrow is the sorrow of those who long for a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. And we live in a world where we remember without even thinking the names of celebrities and rock stars. We don't remember the victims of crimes, particularly racial crimes. Often we just remember it as being black. And even the word victim can be used to disconnect us from the reality of suffering. I want to take a moment to hear the individual names. Hopefully remind us, these people were family members, sons and daughters, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, children of God who are no longer with us. That list of heroes and martyrs that we read in Hebrews 11 just added nine more names. The Reverend Clementa Pickney, age 41, senior pastor. Cynthia Hurd, 54, librarian. The Reverend Sharonda Coleman Singleton, high school track coach. Twanza Sanders, 26, recent college graduate who stood in front of his aunt, Susie Jackson, 87. And the killer told him, it doesn't matter, I'm going to shoot you all anyway. Standing behind her was Ethel Lance, her cousin, who is the sexton of the church, which is like a custodian. Then the Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, 49, involved with community development in Charleston. Myra Thompson, 59, the wife of a Reformed Episcopal Church pastor. And the Reverend Daniel Simmons, 74, the associate pastor of the church. This guy killed both the pastor and the associate pastor. They're meeting this morning, right now. Extraordinary acts of mercy have come in response to Thursday's evil. Sons and daughters of the victim have already breathed out forgiveness to the man who murdered their mom. How do you explain that? It's not sentiment. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can give us these sort of glimpses into the age to come. Jamar Tismi is the president of the Reformed African American Network uh, in the PCA, recent graduate of RTS Jackson. And he said, we need to begin with the end in mind. 
History has a point and a purpose. We're not hurtling aimlessly through time. There's an outcome that's already been decided. In the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, God pulls back the curtain to heaven and reveals what is to come. He gives humanity a glorious, hope-filled picture of eternity. Paradise is a place where sin has been eradicated, death has been defeated forever, peace has been eternally established. The ending has already been accomplished by the life, death, resurrection, and coming return of Jesus Christ. And since we know the end of the story, Christians can endure tragedies like the Charleston shooting with pain, yes, but also with hope and strength, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise of God. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. My closing prayer today, much of my words come from ruling elder Jim Wirt, the newly elected moderator of the PCA. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Today we weep, we repent, and yet we remain hopeful. Again, yet still we weep because evil counts the events at Emmanuel AME in Charleston as a victory. We weep because the forces of darkness in the hearts of men and women who hate those of other races claim success. We weep and grieve with the families of those who have suffered injustice and anguish. We weep because those who hate do not know hope. We weep. We repent of our inclinations towards indifference and busyness and minimization. Our preference is to avoid rather than confront systemic issues in our culture and in our own hearts, which have fertilized the ground from which such unspeakable acts can spring. We repent of the comfortableness of assuming that others, like the authorities, can deal with such evil, leaving us untouched and unmoved and uninvolved. We repent of presuming that we're invulnerable to hate. We also remain hopeful. We remain hopeful because we are the church, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, from every tribe and race and people, tongue and nation, united in Christ. We have hope for a better day to come, a richer day, a sweeter day, and we know we are convinced we are more certain today that we, even we, are called to love in the midst of weeping and repenting and hoping. We will not be deterred because you, Jesus, have called us and will empower us to bless those who wound us, to help those who are downtrodden, to minister to those in pain, and we will. We will because you will. We pray the Lord will continue to convict us of our indifference, to unite us to Christ, to gird our hearts, to quicken our steps as we, city by city, neighborhood by neighborhood, family by family, bring the good news of the gospel to the world in word, deed, and with our lives. We ask that you would bring justice to bear and you would use your means even ever so severely to deal with those who've acted with such malignant hatred. Lord, have mercy on us all. Thank you that you have given Jesus to us as our true king, our perfect prophet, and our great high priest. Drive these truths deep in our hearts and make our hearts believe no matter what is going on that Jesus is better. 
And since we don't know whether they got to say it, when their prayer meeting was abruptly and violently ended, we'll say it now. And all God's people said, Amen. Receive God's blessing from Revelation 21, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.